0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today I will be talking with J. Mark Souther, author of the book Believing in Cleveland, Managing Decline in the Best Location in the Nation. The book was published in 2017 by Temple University Press. Mark is a professor of history at Cleveland State University and has written a great study of how the city dealt with decline and renewal. He shows that the process wasn't linear, but was heavily affected by the city leaders, both public and private. Welcome, Mark Souther. Hi, Mark. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for having me. I know it's a busy time for you between the release of the book and the publicity you have scheduled for it. Plus, you're right in the middle of the semester at Cleveland State University, so I'm glad we were able to find time. Yeah, I'm glad, too. Thank you. So I wanted to mention a couple of things up front. You and I actually know each other. You were my professor for my final research project at Cleveland State when I earned my master's degree in history there. I wrote mm-hmm. a paper related to civil defense in the 1950s in Cleveland, The second thing I wanted to mention up front is that I lived in Cleveland for almost my entire life, so I was there for most of the time period the book uh, covers. So that's another sort of unusual thing as far as I'm concerned as it relates to this book. So uh, I just figured I'd mention that up front so that the audience had some sense of where I'm coming from with this particular book and why I really wanted to do this interview. But let's start through with, though, with some of your background. You've lived in Cleveland for quite a while, but you're actually a child of the South. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your education and previous writing?
1: Sure. Um, I'm originally from Gainesville, Georgia, um, which is in northeast Georgia, between Atlanta and the um, Appalachian Mountains. And I went to college at Furman University in South Carolina in the early 90s, um, got my B.A. in history and uh, studied with uh, some fantastic professors um, among them. Uh, well, I hate to single out just one person, but my advisor, I'll um, really uh, give a hot tip to um, Lloyd Benson um, really inspired me to uh, become a history major. So um, so I'll never forget that. And I decided about midway through Furman that I wanted to go on and, and do more. I couldn't get enough of history and I thought I might wanna go into academia. So. I um, went to the University of Richmond in Virginia and got my M.A. in 1996, and from there I went on to Tulane University in uh, New Orleans, and it was there that I got into tourism. Um, I'd actually done a little bit, I suppose I I should say, with tourism back at um, at U of R, um, did a master's thesis on the early development of Virginia Beach as a seaside resort, but I was not really doing that with urban history in mind. And so the difference in my work was that when I got to Tulane, I got interested in um, tourism and how it had uh, so radically reshaped New Orleans as a city. So that was my first foray into doing um, you know, urban tourism, really, um, as opposed to resort development. So that's what got me started with the, um, the project that led to my first book, New Orleans on Parade, which LSU Press published in 2006.
0: I know you also, in fact, I didn't even, when I was on your website, I spotted it, the, uh, the book you were an editor of. In fact, it looked so interesting. I said, i got to see if I can find that book someplace because it sounded, you know, you were an editor of a collection of a co-editor of books dealing with tourism. What was that book?
1: Um, that's called American Tourism. Constructing a National idea Oh, let's back up. Um, you can edit this out. That's fine. Um, th- that book is called... Um, let me back up again. All Sorry. Right. That... That book is called American Tourism, Constructing a National Tradition, and it's a collection of 35 essays by scholars and public historians and others who um, have connections to, in some cases, uh, places of tourist interest. And so the 35 essays are about iconic places around the United States. So, you know, Wall Drug, um, Daniel Hall Marketplace in Boston, Um, Olvera Street in downtown Los Angeles, just to name a few, Pike Place Market in Seattle, and, um, and so on. So I co-edited that book for the Center for American Places in uh, 2012. And, um, you know, I had high hopes for the book, but it, it came right at the tail end of the, um, the the existence of the Center for American Places. And so in some ways, I think it's unfortunate that we did not get that book out sooner when when that um, press was still really um, very much alive. So it was on the very tail end of its existence. So the book came out and then. Um, it, it really didn't seem to, uh, to, to draw a wide readership or even to find its way into reviewers' hands. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of sorry about that because we certainly worked very hard on the book. And, and I think that the contributors did a wonderful job of um, really speaking in a, a sort of a public-facing way uh, with their writing. Uh, so many of them were academics, but they crafted these essays in such a way that I think they have wide appeal. Um, so, it, you know, I, I, I I'm really proud of that book, and I um I know my co-editor uh, really also is. So I wish that maybe that book had seen the light of day a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I'm as somebody who obviously reads a lot of history, I'm always looking for good history collections of essays. I think obviously there's plenty of monographs out there, but it would be it. I think sometimes nothing's better than sitting down with a, uh, a a book of of essays all related to a single topic because I think you learn so much about the topics, but then you also get such a different view of how somebody reviews a topic. And I can they find they can be so interesting. So I always am looking for an, a new collection, so to speak. Even though that one's not that new anymore. So uh, I'm sorry that it didn't do as well either, but anyway it's still out there which is a good thing so that's a positive Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about some concepts and you've used a couple of the terms already and so i wanted to talk a little bit about the terms public history and how it relates to urban history and i know these terms are important both for your career and this book and wasn't there a recent conference that just ended up in cleveland related to these topics
1: Yes, the Society for American City and Regional Planning History, or SACRF, as members call it. Uh, For short, um, S-A-C-R-P-H is the rather awkward acronym. Um, But it's a wonderful organization I've been involved in for about 16 years now. Um, First conference that I attended was in Philadelphia in 2001. And uh, it really introduced me uh, much more to the field of urban history and uh, urban planning history, so I you know really got to meet a lot of wonderful people who were uh, wonderful mentors to me over the um, you know the ensuing sixteen years. And, uh, so I really wanted to bring this conference to Cleveland. Um, the organization was born in 1986 in, um, Columbus and Cincinnati. I think the first conference was in Columbus, but it had a lot of, uh, involvement from people down in Cincinnati as well. But in all the years, um, of its existence, 30 years or so, it had never been to Cleveland. And, um, you know, so here I am up here in Cleveland thinking, how are we going to get this conference uh, into town? And I really didn't have time to focus on this for a long time. And I finally decided in 2015, this is something I'd really like to pursue. So um, so I did. I, I expressed an interest and um, put in a proposal. And lo and behold, we were able to bring it to Cleveland. And I worked with really a lot of wonderful people in um You know, uh, also from well, from my own college, from the college of um, uh, the the Maxine Goodman Levin College for Urban Affairs at CSU and um, Kent State University. And it was really a pleasure to welcome um, more than 300 people um, to Cleveland.
0: Okay, so let's go back to the the, the terms now. And I, I the public history and urban history. What to someone who may have a general knowledge of history but may not necessarily rep, understand what those specific disciplines are? Could you go a little bit of background in those? I'm um,
1: sure. Well, I can start with public history. Um, public history is uh, what's well, a term that's evolved over time. Um, like a lot of fields have evolved. Uh, it really is pretty wide-ranging. Uh, it, it, some people would define it as history as it's practiced in public places and with publics, plural, meaning that there's no one public. Um, the public has great diversity. And so um, how do we present history and how do we do history uh, for and often with the public? Um, so, I think over the years there's been a, a, an increasing interest in sharing authority, to borrow a term from Michael Frisch at the University of Buffalo. He coined the term, as far as I know, um, shared a, a shared authority. It was the title of a book that he wrote um, a number of years ago about oral history, and and it really, I think, has it, it's, it's captured so well what public historians aspire to do, which is to Um, share authority, to to recognize that people in the community from all walks of life possess knowledge about the past. And if we engage with them, if we listen as well as talk, we are able to to craft a story about the past in in such a rich way. So um, it it takes all kinds of forms, too. Um, Anything from museum exhibitions to um, heritage sites, National Park Service units and how they interpret history. Um, there's oral history, digital history, mo- with, you know, including mobile apps, which I've had, and really just a range of other things that you could rattle off. Um, um, turning to urban history, urban history is a field that, um, you know, of course, grows out of. Um, an interest in understanding how cities grow and develop and how they connect, how their histories connect to that of the, the, the broader society. Um, and, and it's also wide ranging. So you have people who um, specialize in, in various forms of urban history. Some people are really into you know, planning history. Um, and part of what I do is um, the history of planning. Um, but it's not just about urban planners. It's also about um, the, the people who were affected by the plans, the people who shape the plans, uh, sometimes the people who protest the plans. Um, there are certainly, um, you know, social and cultural and political and economic dimensions of this. So some people are looking at all of those. And uh, still others really look at the environmental aspects of it. So how is a city constructed in terms of infrastructure? And, uh, what do the decisions that are made about how cities are laid out and you know, and, and how they're, uh, you know, literally constructed physically, how do those uh, shape the, the lives of the people who live in cities uh, often very unevenly. Um, so you get into issues of, um, you know, uh, sort of structural issues of environmental racism and, uh, in cities that you can see, and especially in cases such as when you have a, a natural disaster, a, partly a man-made disaster like Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans um, more than a decade ago, um, places such as the Lower Ninth Ward suffered disproportionately, and that connects to a, a you know broad history of. Uh, African-Americans often being trapped in, um, you know, uh, floodplains, low-lying areas of cities that were um, maybe not the, the, the choicest land, um, but it was what they maybe had access to.
0: It's interesting because I, one of the things over time from my studies there is that I've, I was reading some of the information that's out there that went on when the uh, federal highways were being built and some of the fighting that went on on the east side suburbs to keep uh, a freeway from coming through that area shaker heights cleveland heights areas so um when you talk about protests that's i think a prime example of where a protest actually worked
1: it's true although you know it, it's interesting that you know, i tell people um the, the Clark Freeway, the, which is part of the broader Shaker Lakes Freeway fight that, that you're speaking of in, in, um, on the east, the east side of Cleveland, that required a lot of clout. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the people who lived in Shaker Heights were um, were people who had uh, really a way of bending the air of influential and powerful people. And what happens in, in other places, I think about, for example, how you know, I've also written about New Orleans and how the Riverfront Expressway was going to go, you know, right between the French Quarter and the Mississippi River, and people with a tremendous uh, um, degree of clout were able to um, stop that before it, um, you know, succeeded in doing what many people would would say would be destroying, um, you know, New Orleans' um, really prime. Uh, location and and one of the most historic places in the United States. But then you go less than a mile away back from the river and you find that a similar elevated expressway that carries to this day, it carries uh, interstate highway 10 goes right through Treme. And so who had a voice in the African-American community that 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 wrecked pretty much. Mm -hmm. It, it went right atop, you know, it goes right over the, um, uh, North Claiborne Avenue, which was a beautiful oak lined thoroughfare that had a lot of uh, really sort of um, one of the hearts of the African-American business community. And it was laid waste by this uh, freeway plan. And so it really uh, hammers home that, you know, when you're talking about um, who, who who can shape the direction of cities. Um, It's it's easier said than done if you don't have the right connections, and Mm -hmm. um, so suburbanites are better positioned sometimes than people in the central city or people who are connected to a part of the city that's been privileged over others, such as the French Quarter, maybe have a greater chance of succeeding.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So let's start to get towards the book. The, you know, the book itself. Um, what made Cleveland so useful as a subject? I know you lived there and you had access to many sources, but you had a number of good reasons for choosing the city as, as a place, to, as an, an area to study. What were some of the reasons you thought Cleveland was a, it was a useful subject?
1: First of all, I was dissatisfied really with the fact that there was not enough written by historians about um, modern Cleveland after World War II. Um, I I didn't really see um, a, a great deal of scholarship from historians. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of excellent work. You know, in the area of urban studies, there's there's been more done on Cleveland, and um, but but historians um, did not really do a whole lot um, with modern Cleveland. So that was the first point. But what I think really, secondly, really drove me to this topic was that you know, having done a study of New Orleans and how tourism transformed that city after World War II, I you know, of course, realize that has very much to do with selling a city to outsiders. Um, So what does it mean to sell a very different kind of city um, like Cleveland, a city that is not really a tourist destination, at least not in the way that New Orleans is. It's having some success now as a destination. But I was more interested once I started to see that Clevelanders had this um, sort of, it's been commented on by many people over the years. I came to find out an, infer- an inferiority complex, um, this idea that Cleveland had um, fallen short. It was a, a once great city that had fallen on hard times, and that maybe it had not really, uh, that maybe it had not really seen the, the the type of rebound that some other cities had seen. Um, and so, I, I really wanted to look into why that mentality was here and what did it mean what does it mean to sell a city to its own people and in some ways i think really that's what the image campaigns that i grabbed hold of to as subjects of study really did was that they were as much at least as much about selling cleveland to clevelanders getting clevelanders to modulate their opinion of how the city was doing as they were directed toward for example, corporate decision makers in New York City who might be looking for a place to relocate uh, corporate headquarters. So those are a couple of the reasons that I really thought that a book like what I was proposing really made sense.
0: Yeah, I know this is something. This book is actually something you've been working on for quite a while. So uh, obviously, things that have happened. You know, I I can think of a couple of things that you've you know that don't take that take place after this book as far as because your book only goes uh, obviously so far but i mean simple things like the rock and roll hall of fame and to this day that there are still people who felt it shouldn't have been in cleveland and clevelanders still have that chip on their shoulder about the fact that they're that the annual um event is not in cleveland it's in new york most of the time so <laughs> they've had it in cleveland mm-hmm. a few times but it's another example but the the image problem and that's to, i'll talk about it as somebody who lived in cleveland for so long it's been you know cleveland's the butt of jokes all the time the cleveland jokes are normal uh people who live outside the people who live there really seem to care what the outside world thinks of them um i in fact i still even to this day people will complain about Sports broadcasters and say, "Oh, they're against Cleveland. They're, they're obviously care about the other. They like the other team better than Cleveland." And and that image issue is is you said it, but I want to bring this back. Is this unusual, or do other cities have some of traits like this in your in your view?
1: I think other cities do have this trait. Um, there's a certain myopia that goes along with living in any one city and focusing too closely on a, uh, one place. You can get very caught up in, in thinking that we, oh, our problems are so much worse. You know, Cleveland has the, our own sort of civic cloud hanging over us, and it the sun never shines here. And and you can look across at Pittsburgh or or you know some other city in the region perhaps and see some project or some story about a, a positive outcome uh, or development and think oh. Why can't we do what they're doing over there? And I saw a lot of evidence of that um, in, in all that I looked at. In fact, um, Pittsburgh was, of all the cities that, um, that Clevelanders looked to, Pittsburgh was the one, I think, with which uh, Clevelanders felt the keenest competition. It, it was closest to us. It um, experienced a similar economic decline in heavy industry. It had similar urban problems to Cleveland. And into a lot of cities in what um, sometimes became known later as the Rust Belt. So uh, what Pittsburgh had most of all that Clevelanders uh, coveted, I think, um, uh, and I won't go into the sports (laughs) realm with this at all because I really don't focus as much on sports or very little on sports in this book and Pittsburgh was that they had a very, at least compared to Cleveland, a very unified leadership Mm -hmm. um, going back to the 1940s. And I don't think you could find quite the degree of um, cohesiveness in Cleveland's um, business community. I call it, you know, like others have called it a growth coalition can explain more about that in a moment if Mm -hmm. you'd like, But, but certainly uh, the Allegheny Conference on Community Development that formed in the mid 40s in Pittsburgh was a, um, a, a really important um, organization um, for unifying um, development and redevelopment in, in that city. And so they had a few really outstanding examples of of how they were turning Pittsburgh around. And there's an image component to that that's hard to miss. So I do think that Clevelanders um, and people in other cities often looked to certain success stories and they thought, well, we're we're not measuring up. And I found this in New Orleans. I should add, um, New Orleanians are very often very pessimistic over the years about the city and how. Um, that the, the problems seemed theirs alone, um, so it's a very distorted view.
0: Yeah, I was. You, you mentioned then because you, you talk about Pittsburgh in in early on in the book, but then you show the uh, another one, Detroit, which mm-hmm. has become the. You know, it's almost like the the ranking has become Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit as far as success in in renewal is concerned.
1: Well, I, I guess I shouldn't – I don't know that I would go some people really. Look, some people. Some say. people. They're looking at downtown right. when they say that because um, it, I, I think anyone who um, looks around Detroit knows that um, the, the revival ha- is extremely uneven. And, and overall, the city is, is still really um, – Suffering. I mean, large stretches of very poorly, while the suburbs are, are doing okay, and downtown is, um, right. you know, developing so so rapidly. It's just stunning to see how quickly downtown is is redeveloping. Um, Cleveland is, uh, is sort of in the same position, although I think that um, we don't have the the, the vast stretches of. Um, Desolation, at least where you don't see any buildings anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cleveland maybe has just not torn down as many of its buildings as um, as as in Detroit. So you don't see prairies um, in, in Cleveland
0: right. uh, as much. Going back briefly to the to the jokes thing, one of the things I remember in the '60s was Ronan Martin's laugh in Cleveland. Most of their they they had just a regular amount of Cleveland jokes. It was just normal, but that's because their creator, George Slatter, I think that's the way he (laughs) pronounced his name, he was from Cleveland he had Cleveland experience and so he was just putting them in there and i know there were articles and stuff written about why they why everybody picks on Cleveland and their jokes and it, and this was obviously before as you point out a lot of the issues were before the the the, the infamous uh, river fire in 1969 so um it it is interesting how that whole thing has still lives today in many ways
1: yeah, you know, one of the things, one of the mysteries for me is the just exactly when and 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 through, through whose m- mouths were were the words the mistake on the lake first uttered in relation to um, Cleveland's problems mm-hmm. as a city. Um, I find it in the early nineteen sixties here and there, but. Uh, it just suddenly appears and it grows after, especially after the river fire in 69, you start to see that term uh, much more widely used, but it, it much predates that. So I, I'm not, I was never really able to, that's one regret I have is that maybe with this book newly out that, uh, you know, someone out there will tell some stories and you know, we have this oral history project that's long standing at, at Cleveland State. And um, I'd love to interview some people about this um, who might have their own insights on it.
0: And then, of course, we have Randy Newman to thank for his wonderful song about <laughs> Cleveland, which actually I think yeah. most Clevelanders now have adopted because even though uh, he clearly talks about the fire and everything, and the fact that it was used as the theme, the main title theme, and for the film Major League and stuff, people I think have adopted that song. It's not as it's not as bad as some of the other things where people want to do their best to forget about the, the, the some of these other situations. And right. Some, But so let's go. Let's let's dig a little deeper. Uh, You mentioned the term growth coalition, and I know I told you that was one of the terms I wanted to talk about a little bit because it is important to your your concept of you know when you're trying to uh, revive a city or 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 do some things to help a city uh, coalition. So what what are we talking about when we talk about growth coalitions?
1: Well, the growth coalition is a term that. It appears from time to time in in, um, urban history and urban studies scholarship. Um, It it really, in some ways, just means the combination of different um, groups within a city whose object is growth. Um, So it's a coalition. At its base, it's really, or at its foundation, it's really a, a group of people who agree on one thing, at least, and that is that they support policies that drive urban growth or metropolitan growth. So um, with that said, um, often they're depicted as um, entities that are very cohesive. Maybe you look at places like Pittsburgh and say, okay, well, I can recognize this in the Allegheny Conference on Community Development, but maybe this is an example that... at least to a, a, a some degree, was um, fairly cohesive and, and uh, quite effective. Um, but I would argue that not all cities have this. I, I, I guess I should back up and say that it um, that the term I really was derived from a slightly different term uh, called growth machines, which appeared in a work um, by John Logan and um, Harvey Malach in, in 1987 called Urban Fortunes, in which they talked about the, the rise of growth machines. And Basically, um, I would identify them, or uh, I would identify growth coalitions or growth machines, however you want to um, reference them, as um, uh, you know, business interests that range from industry to commerce. They um, they cover all parts of the metropolitan area. Some may be focused downtown, others may be focused um, in in outlying areas. Um, The major Media, um, you know, so daily newspapers. We had three at one point in Cleveland, as you probably know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, department stores. Actually, if you go um, back far, add,
0: far enough, yeah, it's, it's, you're right. Right.
1: Yeah, you had the, the Plain Dealer, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Press right. back in the 1960s. Um, into the early 60s, at least, you had all three of those mm-hmm. um, that were daily. But, um, but it also, the Growth Coalition really also included... Um, City Hall, you know, so it's really it, it's public and private. Right. And um, at, it, <clears throat> at its best, it's all these interests maybe working together with um, a common goal in mind. In Cleveland, I found that that was not always the case, though. In fact, it usually wasn't the case in Cleveland. There's a lot of uh, internal dissension that in some ways makes talking about growth coalitions um, obscure more than it reveals.
0: I think that was what your main point was right from the beginning when you used the term was that, uh, Mm -hmm. of course, I think if you look at the two versions of the term coalition and machine, coalition sort of says that people are working together. I mean, machine has to work in one way for it to work properly. But still, I think it's a I under you know, it is a good point to, to make as far especially about Cleveland, as you've pointed out, as far as people not willing or able to work together and in fact that sort of leads to my next question. Uh, you pre- you, you, the book presents the seemingly constant attempts by city leaders and we both public and private to redefine, redefine and renew the image of the Cleveland area. Uh, What do you think this clearly, what were the attempts to make this successful so complicated? You've talked a little bit about it, but we can go a little bit more in depth, uh, particularly related to the fact of different groups having different uh, reasons or different views as to how to do this.
1: Sure. One thing that was often cited, and I think there's um, a a good bit of uh, truth behind this, that a lot of plans were hatched behind closed doors, and I'm talking about. I suppose some of them are, you know, are more recently too. But, um, but there were certain examples of um, of plans that, you know, that their their inception really came in secretive meetings, and then they're um, gradually put out to the public, and then they, the the growth coalition goes to the public and says, "We want you to support this." And so that kind of um, close to the vest, um, secretive way of getting um, a a project going is not one that's likely to engender a lot of um, positive, uh, you know, uh, feeling from the people who um, feel like they've been left out of the conversation. Um, Now, I think there's a lot more. Uh, willingness to bring the public into conversations today than there was, say, 50 or 60 years ago. Um, Erie View, uh, just to take one example, this was the largest downtown urban renewal plan in the nation. Um, If it had all come to pass, uh, it, it would have been really a, you know, first in class kind of development nationally. And that was certainly what um, leaders in Cleveland were yearning for. Uh, what uh, happened, though, I found a story really that um, had not been told. Um, usually the story that's told is that uh, Mayor Anthony Celebres, uh rolls out this plan It's part of the broader urban renewal effort in Cleveland, and it's announced in 1960, and the voters go and they approve it. Uh, they approve the bond issue to get it started, and on it goes. And um, But I found actually that it was um, this is one that's hatched, you know, secretively behind closed doors back in 1959 um, before it's announced. It's being discussed internally. And um, uh, by the time it's announced, uh, even the Cleveland City Planning Commission was surprised because only a year earlier, um, the Growth Coalition um, had uh, sponsored a one hundred thousand dollar uh, the, the general plan for downtown Cleveland, this master plan called Downtown Cleveland's 1975. So, here's what we want Cleveland to be like by the time we get to 1975. Uh, well, Erie View then adopts some of the things that are in the 1959 plan, but other things it just throws out the door or out the window. And uh, so, all of a sudden, the Cleveland Planning Commission, which had you know, been the one to release the 1959 study. Finds out that oh, we're doing a review, okay. And in fact, I found it um, remarkable that uh, one of the uh, planning uh, commissioners, um, city planning commissioners, had uh, been quoted in the before review was uh, formally announced. And in the article, he was quoted as saying, um, in effect. Don't expect anything big in downtown over the next decade or so. It'll be just incremental progress. You won't see any big projects. Well, a week or so later, Erie View is announced, and it's the largest plan in the United States. So that clearly um, shows that there's not a lot of conversation across groups at the time, that these things uh, happen uh, sometimes that they're planned by a, a very small number of people and the people who you would think would be part of the process, the Planning Commission, have never even heard of this. So I found that just stunning.
0: And then and this is something these days, especially younger people, probably wouldn't really understand this as much as we you know, as as back in that period of time, and that was the power of newspapers. Uh, you mentioned at the time mm-hmm. three, and then two newspapers. The newspapers, you know, and they were often across purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, the playing yeah. the press. I mean, the two papers after the the news stopped publishing. I think at sixty three. Um, so the two papers were constantly fighting with each other, and so more than not, more often than not, you ended up with compete competition between the two papers as far as supporting or not supporting any particular project. That's
1: right. I found um, certainly uh, in some cases, the papers both lined up behind certain projects, but, um, but others, they, they took opposing sides. Um, in the 1950s, there was a subway plan for downtown in which, um, you know, the, the plane dealer actually went back and forth in it, either supporting or condemning it. And um, so it depended on the particulars of the plan. And uh, in another case, there was a a plan for a Hilton hotel in the mall, which actually is, you know, it's about, oh, let's see. It's about before the the current Hilton that's beside the mall um, got built. Um, But the city was trying to woo um, Conrad Hilton to to build a 1000 room convention hotel and they promised him land on the mall, <laughs> <laughs> so um, that did not go over so well. The plane dealer um, uh, came out strongly against it because, you know, for one reason it was um, it was on public land and not just any public land, but you know, this was Cleveland's Daniel Burnham designed city beautiful plan influenced uh, centerpiece. And while it had never really been fully realized the way Burnham had intended, it was still seen as a a place that was special and not not a place that should be, um, you know, uh, encroached upon by a massive hotel. Um, But there's also some suggestion in the sources that um, the plane dealer was niffed that, um, th- that, th- this project was leaked to the press first and that the press came out in favor of it w- when it announced it. And then, so the plain dealer was left with either having to go along or, you know, being really kind of miffed that, that it was leaked to the press before, uh, maybe it should have been, um, you know, took a different view. So it's hard to disentangle these things, but, and I don't try to, to say that one factor, um, you know, reshaped what what, you know, what the outcome was. At, uh, you know, to the exclusion of others. But it, but it is worth noting these different, uh, at least, opinions about what might have been behind that. Just to be, be true to the historical record and say that these are the p- things that people were were citing as uh, possible reasons for this rift on this particular issue.
0: I know when the Cleveland press stopped publishing when they finally went out of business there was a lot of on both sides the press the people from the plane dealer were all you know crowing about it, and the people from the press were all saying you you know your city's a mess now because we're gone and uh it it that at the tail end of that period of time um of course the press was the afternoon paper at the time but yeah yeah it's funny when you talk about um ideas and what want people want to do and the fact that people don't always check with, you know, they don't work together on it I still remember when Mayor Perk decided the best idea in the world would be to build a bridge to Toronto, to Canada (laughs) over Lake Erie and and it was like uh, you know, he he, he was going around saying this is a great idea and it was like most people looked at that and said, what? (laughs) You know, it it, it, it didn't come through, by that point we were all pretty cynical you know, most people in the Cleveland area were cynical so any kind of plan Especially one like that, which didn't seem like it had much uh, um, planning behind it. It was just sort of something he said. And so suddenly it got all this uh, newspaper coverage and news coverage. So,
1: Of course, Toronto is not even on Lake Erie.
0: Well, yeah, and I think uh, it was Canada. It wasn't Ontario, Toronto. But, it really yeah. wasn't Toronto. I, I said that wrong. It, it really was just Canada. But the concept was this is a way to get yeah. back and forth to Canada. Of course, these days, that would be a, a real troublesome thing to do. I don't know how Detroit deals with having to you know with going back and forth to Windsor, but anyway, um, you talk about the concepts of renewal and the decline. You want to get away from them being linear. I mean, especially in Cleveland, what do you mean by not linear when you're talking about renewal and decline in a city, particularly? Too often, yeah.
1: Um, that's a good question. Uh, too often, um, we have this very simplistic view of cities as going through a period of growth, and then they reach their peak, then they fall into a long decline if they're in, um, you know, maybe the Great Lakes region or the northeast, and they're dependent on uh older. for example, they go through this period of um, deindustrialization, and then at some point, maybe they hit rock bottom, and then they start to um, revitalize. And now I don't want to uh, say that historians are so simplistic in, in how they have um, dealt with this issue, because certainly I'm not the first historian to suggest that there is this sort of um, r- really difficult, um, as, as one scholar calls it, the rough road to Renaissance on uh, John Teford, um a, a, a book that, you know, was, was very influential on my own scholarship. Um, so I'm certainly not the first, but but too often, and particularly in uh, the, the the public arena and in the you know in media, we see this effort to. to, to try to reduce cities to some simple path. And I think it comes along, goes along with uh, wanting to, or needing to have a narrative, needing to have a sense that you're on some sort of path. And, um, we see the same thing uh, expressed with sports teams, you know, after years of decline, not decline, but maybe years of, um, you know, championship drought, suddenly the um, city of Cleveland has this new moment and it, it comes out of the wilderness and, you know, now we're, we're also seeing it with, with Houston. It's a sort of a cathartic moment to say the least for, for Houstonians, especially after, um, you know, you know what happened with, um, hurricane Harvey and all the, all the flooding recently, um, to have the Astros win, um, and bring, I think it's the first time in 55 years that they had a championship. So there's a great story that goes along with that. Uh, When people interviewed me for various newspaper articles on the RNC in Cleveland in 2016, I I was really disappointed how often they wanted to seize upon 1969, the Cuyahoga River, as kind of the pivot point. They wanted to tell this very simplistic story about, Um, Since 1969, you know, when Cleveland hit its low point, it it grew then to what it is today. I mean, I'm glossing it maybe a little more than most of them did, but they they all felt the need to comment on the river fire. So that image uh, dies hard. Um, Others point to 1978. And, uh, you know, I think... uh, there, you're talking more about uh, kind of an article of faith, even among more uh, scholarly um, accounts of, of Cleveland. Um, that 1978, when you had the default uh, mm-hmm. under Mayor Kucinich, that that was the low point. That we had finally hit rock bottom, mm-hmm. and uh, and then th- we had a comeback under um, you know Mayor Voinovich and then Mayor White. Um, but But, what I found in my work is really that uh there were multiple moments um okay, through the nineteen sixties the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, and since we've gone through multiple moments where we thought that we were turning the corner um and, and you can see it again and again um, so it really pushes back against that simplistic idea that that this is a linear process. Um, It's really, I argue, a tension between um, decline and revitalization Um, that a lot of it depends on perception. A lot of it also depends on geography. So one part of a city may be doing well while other parts are not doing well. That's just the story of uneven metropolitan development. And in some ways, um, in talking about decline, I really had to be careful about using that word decline too loosely. So I do try to define it and to say that some forms of decline can be measured. Others are more perceptual. They see as a decline, someone else may see as something else. Uh, so I try to use the words metropolitan change whenever I get an opportunity. Of course, you can't do that every single time. And if you're writing a book about what people perceive as decline, you want to use the word decline. Um
0: I think that is a an issue in general when it comes to history. Most people who aren't who don't necessarily have as much vested in history as a topic as those people who who use it as a profession, they always think of history as purely linear and, and while it is, I mean obviously things happen one right after the other. Topics aren't linear necessarily. You know, it's not a matter that something changes and the next thing changes and it just automatically flows. And so when you study an area or a period, you can't just say, well, this is what happened going day by day and come up with history.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, historians will tell anyone who will listen that um, that, that perspective matters, uh, and that uh, any story that we tell about the past is an interpretation, and it leaves certain things out um, because nothing can be comprehensive. So, we're all trying to make sense of the past, and we're uh, doing so through careful study of primary sources, and um, you know, and, and trying to make sense of things. Um, I had to make a lot of decisions in the book about what to include and what not to include and you know, every one of those decisions was an interpretive choice uh, and a lot of those interpretive choices are driven by the fact that you know I did enough research in several years time to have produced a book uh, easily twice or three times as long but I couldn't really expect people to buy or read read such a book. And um and, and really sometimes you don't need all of the evidence that you found to make a point. So I tried to pick exemplary um uh topics any you know, uh digestible.
0: Right. So you broke the book down into basically two periods, but then you've got the middle well, you know, obviously three periods, but the middle part is is your centerpiece, and that's the mayoralty period of Carl Stokes. Why did you consider that to be a logical period to use as your centerpiece?
1: Well, for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, the, the book is titled Believing in Cleveland, and somewhere along the way, I, I picked up that title as uh, kind of the—it the, the, it became sort of how I was um, conceptualizing my project. Um, I should say briefly that the the name—or believe or the title Believing in Cleveland— uh, was inspired by the um, Plain Dealers uh, ad campaign in 2005, which was called simply Believe in Cleveland. And the suggestion there was that we needed to um, believe in the city because. That was part of what it might take to make Cleveland continue to prosper or to begin to prosper, um, and it, it also suggested that maybe the comeback of the 80s and 90s had run out of steam. And I, I think that on some level it did. We we did see the a slowdown in development. We saw um, about 100,000 I, I think jobs leaving manufacturing jobs leaving Cuyahoga County in a 10-year period uh, in the 2000s, and so uh, clearly not everything was going so well. And the, uh, so I saw that as an effort to kind of, um, uh, rally, <laughs> rally Clevelanders. But as I um, started looking back backward, then I started finding other uses of that concept of believing in the city. And I was really taken when I saw, um, a 1967 Carl Stokes for mayor ad in which it, uh, he said, um, I believe in Cleveland. And so and he believed in city again. And while he's really talking in that ad about um, very substantive problems, which Cleveland and other cities uh, certainly had in the late 1960s. This is, a, I think, a pivotal moment. Um, but he was also um, very much aware that Cleveland had developed an image problem and a sort of a self-image problem. So um, you know, he comes into office um, just a year after the Huff, Huff uprising, um, which is uh, you know, a series of what the uh, types of events that happened in, in a lot of cities um, where, um, you know, uh, racial clashes occurred uh, for a variety of reasons, um, ranging from, uh, you know, uh, concerns of the police brutality to failed urban renewal to um, lack of code enforcement in, um, in, in neighborhoods that was uh, sort of hastening their decay. Um, really a host of, of um, you know, human problems connected to uh, urban places. And so Cleveland was not immune to these problems by any stretch. And, and we had the, um, uh, you know, the the Huff incident in, in 66. And, and Carl Stokes takes office. I really see it as this pivotal moment because uh, very clearly at that time, Cleveland is in the throes of what, Um, The historian Tom Segura calls the urban crisis, and and that's a term that's widely circulated now. Um, It was very clear that Cleveland had been in an urban crisis for quite a while, and that crisis had come to a head um, by 1966 and 67. So I do see that as kind of this pivotal moment in which to study this historic mayoralty, the first African-American elected to... um, Uh, to be mayor of a major American city and to look at a tighter period and and, um, put the different themes together that were spread out across three. The 60s, pull those together and let's look at them, um, you know, for a four year period when he was mayor. So that's really why I made that um, central. It's I think it's a time of central importance. And um, I think it's a time that yeah, Maybe things could have turned out differently, but for a few things that happened in the late 60s.
0: Yeah, there, there's no question that because like many, many major American cities, Cleveland has, especially during this period, was having a major issues related to race. And Carl Stokes election was considered to be, you know, an unbelievably great thing by some people. And then, of course, by other people in, that lived in the area, not so much. Mm hmm.
1: Absolutely. Um, but, but what Carl Stokes really did was that he he reframed what people thought about Cleveland for a short time, at least. Right. There was this moment of hope um, <laughs> where Cleveland was in a, a positive national spotlight, at least for a year or so, There right. in 67, 68. Um, I argue that he used the Cleveland Now um, uh, slogan very adeptly to try to, at least at first, to try to package Um, a combination of projects that ranged from things that were very attainable, they were small, very visible projects, to things that were almost insoluble problems, things that it might take 25 years to to remedy um, uh, because of the the, the sheer complexity of problems, the amount of money that it would take to really solve those problems, and so on. So he really, um, I think, adeptly used um, small, incremental, highly visible projects that would give the image of uh, progress to a city that had seen, in, in many ways, not a lot of progress in, in the preceding years. Um, it had seen an urban renewal of any American city, and I don't just mean Erie View now, I mean the, the entire city um, had uh, more than 6,000 acres of land under federal urban renewal uh status but precious few of those acres ever got redeveloped mm-hmm. at least in the time frame that people were anticipating and so when when Stokes took office he said we, you know, one of our priorities is to get affordable housing in this city and we've done more destroying of affordable housing for people than we've done to um, to create it and um, but, but you don't do that overnight um, and so he did a, a number of other things to try to You know, kind of uh, show the intent to turn things around, and so I explore those things in that chapter.
0: It's 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 funny that. We go we went through this same in nineteen seventy-five when Cleveland uh had the first African American uh manager of a of a major league baseball team. And once again everything was great about Cleveland, and then within two years the broadcast one of the radio broadcasters for the Indians was openly criticizing the manager on the air all the time. It was it was just a, another example of uh, you know, one thing going positive and then starting to sort of fall away as time went on, but it, it's, it's, it's got its similarities there. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you, where did, where was the cutoff point for the study? How late did you go? Because obviously, as you pointed mm-hmm. out, you could have gone much farther and make the book three times its size, but what did you, de- you know, where <laughs> did you decide to stop to, to cut off your, uh, your study?
1: Well, I, you know, of course I started it in, um, in World War Two, Right. Uh, and and I, it begins really, it, it begins in the time that the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company created the slogan "the best location in the nation." And so, since that's in my sub, interested in um, sort of what happens after the um, relative boom time of the of the war years, um, I started there and I ended it in um, 1979, approximately, mm-hmm. uh, right after the default and uh, right at the time that um, Mayor Voinovich... Um, took office because that was the that was the the time that people uh, termed the comeback or the comeback years mm-hmm. when Cleveland was um, you know sometimes touted as America's comeback city. So I wanted to take this idea that uh, some scholars have put forth of messiah mayors, um, people like Voinovich who um, come in and rescue a city from you know, from the clutches of decline and, um, you know, reframe the narrative. Um, certainly Voinovich is one of the mayors that fits that, that, um, model. Um, others are, you know, William Donald Schaefer in, in Baltimore, um, Kevin White in Boston, among others. So, I wanted to push back a little against that, not to say that um, Messiah mayors didn't exist and that they were insignificant, because I don't think that, um, I certainly wouldn't want to diminish the significance of um, the the positive things that were accomplished. But on the other hand, um, to suggest that the, the the narrative is so simplistic that that really all it took was the right mayor to, to come into office and then things were suddenly going to go in a very different direction and keep going that way. I, I think is um, misleading, and and so I wanted to to cut it off there since so much attention focused on the 1980s and 90s as a as a time of um, you know renewed prosperity. Mm-hmm. And um, And I thought by ending with the the comeback, I could help people better understand sort of what led up to that and why why was it seen as a comeback then to sort of complicate understandings of you know what, um, what it meant to come back. And I found out, hey, we've been coming back again and again. We're in this perpetual state of trying to come back. And mm-hmm. I think we're there again now. I'm not sure that we're going to, um, you know, come back the way everyone maybe wishes we would. Um, there's certainly some positive signs, but I do have a, 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 a you know, I think a healthy measure of, um, reservation about, uh, you know, getting out my, my penance and my, um, you know, my, my bullhorn and <laughs> cowbell, you know, I'm not quite ready to ring the cowbell and, um, and, and shout, you know, I, I'm happy to see the positive things that are happening in our city, but, um, but I also see a lot of problems.
0: So. Well, I wanted—I know we're running out of time. I wanted to real quickly talk about resources. I know that uh, my experience and, and mm-hmm. obviously, one of the things that Cleveland has—and I don't know what your your experiences is with other cities—but Cleveland, the Cleveland area, definitely has some really great primary source um, uh, archives that I suspect were very helpful for you for this project. And the fact that you were—they were, they were mm-hmm. local. They were local, made it a little easier as far as doing some of the research you had to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it um, really helped quite a lot to have um, wonderful um, repositories like um, Western Reserve Historical Society. Um, I found um, so many um, amazingly detailed records and, and um, manuscript papers in, in that library, uh, ranging from mayor's papers to um, uh, other city officials' uh, records to um entities such as the Greater Cleveland Growth Association um uh, university circle incorporated and so on um i also the fact that the plain dealer is now fully um indexed and keyword searchable, um, through the Cleveland public library. Um, um, uh, I'm really thankful room. that that's, uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> I worked so there for 30 years. So i Cleveland public library is always one of those places that I always point yeah. to as a positive for Cleveland.
1: Absolutely. And this, this collection that they have, of course, it's a, you know, it's a subscription service that they pay for. Um, but thank goodness they do, because, um, I can tell you that for my new Orleans book, I read 30 years, a, a worth of microfilm for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. I, I literally cranked the microfilm slowly, uh, you know, frame by frame uh, for a 30-year period before I started. I, you know, at that point, I just couldn't do anymore. more. That, that covered a lot of the ground I needed to cover, and um, I found countless sources doing that. Um, it helped me piece together the basic narrative. Um, so that's really important, but um, having the ability to to dive in through very powerful keyword searches really just transforms research. Um, You know, you don't feel now like you have to um, sort of follow the newspaper all the way through for fear of missing key developments or missing the trajectory as it's presented, at least from one perspective. Um, So I really felt like I needed that when I did the new Orleans book, but I I felt much more comfortable um, diving in and doing um, you know, targeted searches in the, in the plain dealer. And then, you know, of course, going to all my other types of sources, um, then, I would have without that. So definitely tremendous CSU special collections also, um, had a lot of great resources for me. Um, uh, the, the county archives, Cuyahoga County Archives was um, very helpful. And, um you know, CPL's um, Cleveland Public Library's Public Administration Library guided mm-hmm. me to a, a lot of rich materials, including the source of the book's cover. So that was discovered mm-hmm. Uh Right there
0: in City Hall. Right. It's it's interesting that Cleveland Public Library actually has a branch at City Hall whose main you know, one of their purposes is to be the library for the, the city administration and, and you're right, the amount of material that they've been able to, to, to acquire and keep over the years has been pretty tremendous. So what's next for you? Uh, I know you detail some future plans on your website, MarkSother.org, mm-hmm. but what's your current research mm-hmm. taking taking you?
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm exploring different, different topics. One that's not listed on there that I want to do more with is, um, and this is not a book project, but it's more um, something that I think I would um, write an article on. I want to look more at the, um, the Cleveland Clinic area and around Euclid and 105th. Um, that's a really fascinating area that um, I, I partially explored in both the book and in a 2011 uh, Journal of Planning History article uh, about university circle institutions and their relationship with surrounding neighborhoods. But I'm really interested in um, looking more uh, directly at what was considered Cleveland's second downtown, and also to look at uh, largely its erasure um, as the Cleveland Clinic developed. So that's something I, I want want to do more with. Um, I've also been looking at this project. Um, in uh, in Georgia, my my home state, uh, looking at the fall line cities of Augusta, Macon, and Columbus, and um, I'm you know, I'm finding some interesting uh, patterns in looking at those three cities, and um, so I'm really interested to see how th- these um, you know these three places that emerge, um, you know really a lot of it um, had to do with um, you know being on the heads of navigable in the 19th century and the rise of, um, uh, you know, the textile industry, all these were to varying degrees, textile centers. And in fact, two of them claimed to be the Lowell of the South. (laughs) So, um, and as you move forward into the 20th century, um, all three of these, uh, struggle with the same kinds of urban problems that bigger cities, uh, face and, you know, the loss of, uh, the people and jobs to the suburbs, growing suburbs, um, and also a marginalization as Atlanta became the, um, the, you know, the sort of the new South capital, um, these places that are down in the middle of the state languished, um, uh, by comparison. And, Also, all three of them end up in the um, later years of the 20th century pursuing and eventually succeeding in um, consolidating city and county government, which is something that, you know, if you look at Cleveland, for example, you find that there were plans over the years um, to try to create some sort of unified government. And every single time it failed miserably. Of course, it's because we're ringed by 60 municipalities in Cuyahoga County, right. um, but uh, you know they didn't have those problems in in these um, these Georgia communities, um, and then for Augusta specifically, uh, it of all the three of those um, became a uh, rather. Um strong uh tourist destination in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries um, well before the um you know augusta National Golf Club started hosting the masters um augusta was um touting itself as the you know the winter uh, resort capital of America, which was a bit of a, a stretch of course uh, but it did um enjoy quite a lot of success in that and um so i'm um yeah i'm interested in exploring. Uh, how, you know, the rivalries among those three very similar cities played out across, you know, about, um, so a lot will depend for that. A lot will depend on what kind of primary sources I'm able to find down there. And I haven't really, um, for that one, I've been exploring the, um, uh, the newspapers, um, online, um, which thankfully are available for those three cities, but, but I need to uh, figure out sort of what the primary sources, um, you know, in, uh, in Georgia will support. Um, so those are a couple of projects that are um, on the horizon. And, you know, I'll also keep doing um, the, the, the public and digital history projects. I'm currently doing an uh, NEH-funded um, digital project with a university over in, um, in Kenya. So continue to work on those things, too.
0: Well, thanks for talking to me, Mark. This was a real treat for me as I say uh, I've been following the your announcements of the book, following your posts <laughs> where you start to talk about each step. I even remember the one where you said, "How do I find an indexer?" <laughs> and, and things like yeah. that. So, so it, it's been yeah. fun following the project of the book, uh, you know, the progress, and I'm 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 glad we were able to talk and good luck with the book, and I hope it continues to do well.
1: Thanks, thanks so much. I I appreciate the time this morning and um I'm uh, very thankful for the opportunity.
0: Thanks to Mark for his time. This is Joel Cherney for the New Books Network.